welcome. We're all here, which is step one. This, this being a, a techniques masterclass, we're going to have steps for things. Of course, so step one is being here. And, uh, one of the things I often say to groups is, you know, of course, we've all come here for a reason, but we've each come for our own reasons, sure. And uh, I like the idea. I can't remember when I, when I first heard it, but the idea that each of us have our conscious mind reasons for being here, but of course, at the same time, you've also got an unconscious mind. And so, me too, each one of us. So each of us has our conscious mind reasons for having come here today, the kind of ticks in the box, whatever those might be, that we use to convince ourselves at a conscious level. But one of the things I'd invite you to do today is to open to the possibility that you, know, you also have an unconscious mind. You've heard this idea that you've got a conscious mind and you've also got an unconscious mind. This, yes? No? What are you talking about? Uh, and that you also have reasons at an unconscious level for being here. And that's kind of a nice idea, I think, anyway. Because whenever I come on a course, regardless of what my conscious mind reasons are, I get kind of curious and excited to discover what my unconscious reasons may have been. And sometimes that happens partway through the course, and sometimes it happens some weeks later, and sometimes Sometimes I never find out. Of course, I don't know which ones those are, because I've never found out. But the other thing I'd like to invite you to do is to open to the idea that you can get more than you came for. And, uh, you know, because each of you, as I said, have come here for a reason. You've got certain things in mind, certain goals you want to achieve, certain experiences perhaps you want to have, certain changes you'd like to make, sure. Um, and like I said, I'd like you to open to the possibility that you can get all of that and more. As when I first started studying uh, this stuff, because uh, this field of NLP grew out of um, the, the work originally of a guy called uh, John Grinder and a guy called Richard Bandler, and they modeled uh, a number of um, famous change workers of the day. And these people are amazing communicators, amazing at doing change work. and. Uh, namely Fritz Perls, Virginia Sotir, and a guy called Milton Erickson. And uh, Virginia used to say things like, the fact that you've come here today means that you can make whatever changes you want in your life. And uh, things like, you know, the fact that you're listening to me means you can develop whatever levels of skill you want to. Which, from a logical perspective, those assertions don't actually make sense. But we've got a conscious mind and an unconscious mind. And at an unconscious level, they do. So one of the things we're going to be exploring today is language. We're going to be looking at a bunch of different things. We're going to be exploring the techniques, sure, the, the, the specific, what we might call the, the big processes some of the big processes of NLP. So we'll be looking at uh, the phobia cure. We'll be looking at um, a technique developed by Robert Diltz called the meta mirror. We'll be looking at the allergy cure. We'll be looking at um, a thing called change personal history. We'll be looking at future pacing and a variety of other things. But we'll also be exploring some of the smaller chunk techniques. Because one of the questions I'm going to be asking in a little while is, what is a technique? What is that? You know, because I'm guessing that the fact that you've all come on a course called NLP Techniques Masterclass means that this idea of NLP Techniques has some interest, that there's some value to you. 
and learning that. So I'm curious about what some of your ideas are about what is a technique. And so we'll also be looking at some of the more, what you might call micro techniques. Some of the things, some of the things that maybe you already do. And by the way, I'm gonna be saying all kinds of stuff over the next two days. And I'm not suggesting that you believe it or take it as gospel or anything like that. Quite the opposite. What I'd like to invite you to do is to test it out against your own experience. The things you like, try them out in your own lives with your clients, the people you meet, the people you work with, with yourself. And anything that you find useful, use that, keep it. Anything that you don't find useful, put it to one side. You don't need to use it, you don't need to do it. You might like to revisit it later and see if it has new applicability, but if something doesn't work for you or something doesn't feel right for you or something doesn't, you know, look like the sort of thing that you, you want to engage with at the moment, that's okay. This is all on offer, but none of it's mandatory. Even that statement. <sighs> Do that with me for a second. Just go, ah. <sighs> I'll do it again. <sighs> and one more time. <sighs> what happens when you do that? What do you notice? What are you aware of? How do you respond internally when you make that sound and breathe in and breathe out? What are some of the things you've already noticed taking place in your neurology having done that? Your shoulders relaxed. Interesting. What else? Calm. <sighs> Interesting, isn't it? How quickly you can make a change in your own state. And see, to some extent, the stuff we're going to be exploring today has a relationship to change of state. Because a number of the techniques are, are related to, you could say, challenges or problems or things people have been perceiving as problems. And any problem someone has, has within it or around it, some kind of state of mind, some kind of state of mind and body. And so at least part of each of the techniques is going to be about changing state and changing the way someone perceives something. They, because there's this idea, um, have you heard of the presuppositions of NLP? Well, one of the presuppositions of NLP, presuppositions of NLP, they're just kind of the big headline ideas um, that are the, it's not that they're true, it's just that if you act as though they're true when you're doing change work or when you're communicating with people, when you're influencing people, uh, you, you can be more effective. If it works for you. And it's, again, something I'd suggest trying on for size and seeing, how it, seeing what sort of results you get. Um, well, one of the presuppositions of NLP is the idea that the map is not the territory. That we don't experience reality directly, but rather through maps and models we hold in our neurophysiology, and that we've been developing ever since we were born, sure. And that if someone's experiencing a problem or a challenge, that that problem or challenge doesn't exist in reality, that it exists in the way that they're relating to reality, that the maps and models that they're making of reality in their neurology. Does that make sense? And so, when Bandler and Grinder modeled Pearls, Satir, and Erickson, what they found was that these people would work on enriching a person's model of reality, enriching their map of reality. They wouldn't try and fix the problem. 
they treated the, prob the, the problem as actually a skill that the person had developed. And that they had a map of reality which could do with enriching. So, you know, if I have a map of the local countryside and there's been a housing estate built since the map was made, no matter how nice the map is, I'm not going to find the housing estate that isn't on it. I need to update my map to be able to find it. Does that make sense? So, we're also going to be exploring intention, the idea of intention when you're doing change work with someone. And uh, framing, how you can set frames uh, during, during sessions with people to make change quicker, easier, and that sort of thing. Um, we're going to look at anchoring, which is to do with states. Like, do this one more time. Go, <sighs> one of the things you may begin to discover as we go through the weekend is that every time I do that, your neurology relaxes. Now, is that a technique? What do you reckon? Technique? Yes? No? Sure. Sure. You could think of it like that. It's a way of thinking about it. It's also, you could think of it as an anchor. And it, when I first started studying NLP, I, there were these exercises that said, see what you see, hear what you hear, feel what you feel, then anchor it by squeezing your thumb and forefinger together. And I did it and it never seemed to work. And so I, after a while I thought, well, I guess anchoring just doesn't work for me. Because I didn't realize that anchoring is a natural process. You know, I was, I was out in California a few weeks ago and I was interviewing a woman called Judy Delosier, who was one of the group of students, uh, Bandler and Grinder students, when uh, NLP was first being developed. And so I, I asked Judy, I said, what are some of your approaches? What are some of the obstacles that people sometimes have to learning NLP? And what are some of your approaches to helping them learn it? And she gave me a very interesting answer. She said, well, a lot of times I find that people think the way they're taught NLP is, is kind of a bolt-on to their existing experience. And she said, what I encourage people to do is I say to them, start opening your mind and opening your eyes and opening your ears to the places in your life where you already do this stuff, where you already have been using NLP and just hadn't noticed it. Because in a very real way, NLP is a is an expression or a description, you could say, of what people do anyway. You know, the phobia cure, which is one of the things we're going to be exploring this weekend, do you know how they invented it? Well, to backtrack a bit, uh, Bandler and Grinder, the first NLP model was a, um, called the Meta Model. And it was a linguistic model of how the therapists Fritz Perls and Virginia Satir used language when they were working with people. And Bandler and Grinder modeled out what they did because they seemed to be using the same kinds of questions and the same kinds of statements in a systematic way. Bandler and Grinder modeled that out, figured out what they were responding to and how they used language, and then they enhanced it with some stuff of their own. Tried it out, taught it to people, made it so that it could be replicated, and found that they could get the same kind of quality of results as these people. Well, the way they that the phobia cure was invented is they took out an ad in the paper and said, wanted people who used to have a phobia and don't have one anymore, people who got over it. Because in the field of therapy, they've been studying people who had phobias and couldn't get rid of them. So they had all sorts of information about how not to get rid of a phobia. <laughs> and Bandler and Grinder said, maybe they're looking in the wrong place. And so they went and looked at who's actually got over them. 
and they found that they all did something very, very similar. And they modeled it out after speaking to a hundred of these people who used to have a real phobia and they got over it. Without therapy or without anything, they just naturally and spontaneously did it. Bandler and Grinder modeled out the pattern of what it was that they did on the inside. What was it they were doing with their minds and their bodies that allowed them to do that? And then, you know, over time they juiced it up. But one of the things I really want to let you guys know is that this stuff is an expression of what we do naturally as human beings. And it's an expression of our birthright. You know, um, about 10 years ago, I was living in London. And I, all my life, I'd been kind of interested in, thought I'd like to do a martial art. And I'd kind of got into spirituality. And I thought, you know what, I'd love to do a martial art that's a spiritual martial art. And so I looked around and I had Aikido recommended to me because very spiritual, long tradition, lots of ritual and, and that associated with it. And I started studying it. And I studied it for six months. And I hated it. Every minute of it. And then I got injured after six months and I never went back to it. And I didn't go back to martial arts for many, many years. And then I thought, that's why I thought, you know, I still really want to do it. I really want to kind of connect with that warrior energy and do that stuff. So a friend of mine uh, was a, um, a karate trainer. And I said, would you teach me karate? And he said, sure. You know, karate, long history, uh, lots of ritual, lots of, you know, philosophy behind it. And I'd been doing it for about two months, hating every minute of it. And, and I said, uh, I said, mate, how long was it before you started to enjoy this? And he said, oh, I started enjoying it from the very first time. He said, and I was like, oh. <laughs> and he made a really good point. He said, the more you enjoy doing something, the more you're going to do it. The more motiv naturally motivated you're going to be. So I quit doing karate because um, I couldn't stand it. And uh, then probably two months later, I had a guy on one of my training courses. And I'd, I'd been doing an affirmation uh, in the interim, saying, I'm so happy and grateful that I found uh, um, a, an exercise that I just love doing, found some kind of activity I love doing. And so I'd affirmed that every day and then kind of let it go. And this guy said to me, he said, oh, man, you should come on my martial arts course. I said, what is it? He said, it's this Israeli martial art called Krav Maga. And something in me just went, yes. And I was like, oh, cool. So I flew to Dublin, where the course was happening. and. It was a Saturday morning, room full of people, and all these people are of all kinds of different skill levels. Some of them had been doing martial arts for years. Some of them, it was the first, first experience of, you know, like doing a self-defense course and that sort of thing. And at the beginning of the course, he said, okay, wherever you're starting from today, he said, by the end of tomorrow, you're going to be amazed at what you can do. And he started telling us about Krav Maga. He, he said it hadn't been around for very long. It had been invented uh, during the last century by a guy called Emil Lichtenfeld, who lived in Bratislava. And he was a Jewish guy, and he was teaching the, the Jewish populace how to defend themselves uh, against the Nazi, uh, the Nazi you know, gangs and so on. Um, and he was a boxer and a wrestler, but he found that the things that he'd been learning in the, you know, highly structured environment of, you know, the boxing ring and the wrestling ring, that they didn't actually work in, in rough going in the street. And so he started developing a set of techniques based on, and this I thought was very interesting, based on what people did naturally anyway, the natural responses, the natural physiological 
responses to a situation. And he, taught, he started teaching these techniques to the people that he was working with. And it became very, very successful. He ended up then uh, working with the Haganah, which was the, um, the Israeli underground army. And then uh, when Israel became a state, it, he became the hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat instructor for the Israeli army. And it's continued to evolve and develop. But the interesting thing is, rather than saying, you know, here's the set of routines and you must do it like this every time and working to create the exact same kind of thing, they really, really recognize that everybody's different, that we've all got our own particular and unique physiology and neurological responses to things. So the technique that works very well for one person may not work for the next person or may have to be adjusted. And this is one of the things I really like about it. It's highly improvisational. So yeah, you start off by doing routines and drills so that you can kind of get the steps into, your, into the muscle, so to speak. But then you make it your own. That's what it's, that's what it's about. It's about making it your own. And uh, so, what I found was that because it's something that was very personalizable and improvisational and this sort of thing, it just really lit something up inside of me and I just loved it. And sure enough, by the end of the second day, I was blown away by how far we'd come. And I've been doing it ever since. And the funny thing is, in the past, I'd always had to try and motivate myself to do stuff. But with this stuff, it's just like looking for opportunities to do it every day, going out, not going out and you know, beating people up and stuff, <laughs> uh, because it's very much only to be used in, when the situation calls for it. But I'm not having to motivate myself to go and train. It's just like it's, more like, it's more like you're being pulled towards doing this stuff rather than having to push yourself. So I thought that was really cool. We'll also be looking at acuity, which is being able to watch and listen, to be able to notice the things that people are saying and doing, uh, and also to notice what they're not saying and what they're not doing. You don't have to notice all of what they're not saying and not doing, because obviously that's a large range of stuff. But it's about uh, paying attention to the information that they give you, because one of the, another of the presuppositions or ideas of NLP is that process can be more powerful than content. The how people are doing something can be more important than the, the, the story that they tell you about it. You know, if someone says, oh, I've, I've got this problem or that problem, or I can't do this or I can't do that, if you ask them why, which can be an interesting question, by the way, when you ask them why, they'll tell you their story about why they can't do that or why they've got the problem. They'll tell you what their reality is like. But that's not the reason why. The reason why, if there is a reason why, is about how they're doing this stuff. It's the process by which they're doing it. So we'll explore that. And by the end of, probably by the end of this morning, you'll have had some examples of that. Um, we're going to be exploring attitude. Uh, and the attitude of NLP, part of the attitude of NLP is that anything's possible. Anything's possible. Let's assume. Now, here's the thing. If, if you're going, yes, I've heard this idea that anything's possible, but I absolutely know it's not true. Let me make it practical for you. I guess there probably are limits to what's possible. But the only way you can know what those limits are is experientially. You know, if something's not possible, we'll find out soon enough anyway. So let's assume it is possible, go full out to get to where we want to go. And if we run up against the boundary of impossibility, well, then we'll you know, recalibrate, replan, and, and figure out what to do next. We'll respond to the situation. But assume that anything's possible. 
And uh, the, uh, who's heard this idea that there's no failure, only feedback? Well, I used to hear that and I'd go, yeah, well, I don't know, where I work, there's definitely failure and there's definitely the... And then I heard something that, again, made it practical and realistic, which is failure is only possible if you set a time limit. If you set a time limit, you know, if I say, okay, I want you all to be NLP MetaMaster practitioners by 10.15 a.m., that might be a challenge. But if you guys decided that you guys wanted to get to that level of skill and ability, then you could do that. It may take some of you two years, it may take, take some of you 10 years, but that doesn't matter. If you put a time limit, then it's possible to fail. Otherwise, no. Does that make sense? Does that kind of ground those ideas in reality a little bit more for you guys? Okay. Um, we'll be exploring flexibility. And it's interesting because the big, big chunk techniques we'll be looking at, they have steps. You know, step one, do this. Step two, do that. Step three, do that. When I demonstrate them, I'm going to be endeavoring to follow the steps as closely as I can. And you know what? I won't. I'll do some other stuff in between. I'll do, because I'm going to be responding to the person. And I'm assuming that the person and their neurology hasn't necessarily read the steps before. They haven't got the steps coded in. So, so while I've got a, a set of steps, I'd like, well, actually, let's do a little exercise. Um, put your pads and pens and that sort of thing on the floor for a second. <coughs> What I'm going to invite you to do in just a moment, uh, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Okay, the seven people on this side of the room, so the dividing line is between Meg and Tony. You guys, what you guys are going to do is you're going to have a con each going to have a conversation with one of these guys. You're going to stand up and meet in the center of the room. You're going to match their blink rates. So whenever they blink, you're going to blink as well. You guys... You're going to engage in those conversations. You're going to speak at the rate that they're breathing. So you're going to speak whenever they're breathing out, and you're going to be quiet whenever they're breathing in. Okay? So that's, uh, that's our challenge for today. Go on. Do it. Hello. 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 Okay, stop. Now, how is this? What are you noticing? What are you aware of in doing that? Awkward? What else? I cannot, cannot see the breathing. You can't see the breathing. Oh, no. What else? It's very hard to not blink if you're naturally wanting to blink and she hasn't blinked. Isn't it? What else? More than one thing at a time. Three things and it's really complicated. Okay, now what I want you to do is just shake that off for a second, just shake With the same person, I want you to have a conversation, but your goal is to just create a connection with them, whether it's someone you know or someone you've just met. I just want you to you know, find some kind of commonality, some way of just creating you know, a person-to-person -person human connection with them. Just connect with them, whatever that means to you. Okay? Go to it. 
So what, what, what's your reason for coming on the course then, mate? What's, sorry? what's your reason for coming on the course today? Um, revision. Yeah. 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 So you say it's your first. You might even like to make them feel good in the process. So I have an opportunity to do something completely different with life. So somebody recommended a trainer with that company as well, but they just have time mm. or the inclination to get any of the courses going. So I'm still friends with um, the two. They're a married couple and they train together. So. So have you got your own practice now? No, no, I'm, I'm teaching at home. I did, want, I did want to be a trainer. All right, take your seats. How was that different? Felt natural. What else? You started connecting. You started connecting with the person. What else? Talk. Talking as well as trying to do your blinking, and I, oh yes, am I actually breathing? <laughs> <laughs> now, who were you talking with? Um, Jason. Would you guys come and join me at the front of the room for a second? Would you be willing to just continue that conversation together for a minute while I'm talking to these guys? Would that be okay? Yeah, carry on, carry on. So what I'd like you guys to do is to notice the ways in which they start to match and mirror each other, get into rapport with each other, maybe even blinking at the same rate, maybe even breathing at the same rate, maybe even moving when the other moves and that sort of thing. Just notice what you notice about pacing and leading. So one person doing something, then the other one doing it a few seconds later, that sort of thing. Little movements in the body. All that sort of stuff. Great, give her a round of applause. Thanks, guys, that was terrific. Did you notice that even there, that, this, uh, that we naturally have the ability to do these things? Now, of course, it's great to do exercises to train yourself to be able to match and mirror certain things. That can be useful. But it's an expression of something we already do naturally anyway. We already do this stuff. And if your intention is on getting the technique right, then it can kind of get kind of preoccupying with the, the steps of the technique. Whereas if your intention is to connect with and create something good for the person who's standing in front of you, and the technique can act as sort of a handrail, you know, something to guide you as you go through that process. Now, when you're first doing the techniques, and in this environment particularly, this is an opportunity to practice and train and experiment and try things out. So you can relax. When you're, who, who will be going through these particular techniques, or at least one of them, for the first time? Anyone? Okay, so you've all, all the rest of you have done all the rest of the techniques? Yes, no, no. Okay, so that would be, who, who will be going through at least one of the techniques for the first time this weekend? Okay, great. So, when you do anything for the first time, it's, it's a new learning experience. So you don't have to be, expect to be absolutely brilliant and do it the same way I did and that sort of thing. It's okay. Just relax and explore and notice what you can notice as you go through this process. The other thing we're going to be exploring is generativity. The idea of, on the one hand, while these techniques um, 
the frame I've put around them is they're for solving particular kinds of problems. It's also possible, even in the process of helping so someone solve a problem, say something like, you know, it's not so much about curing a particular phobia. It's about having overcome this, which you had thought was so challenging. What are all the other things that you can overcome in your future? How can these learnings generalize in powerful and useful ways into the other areas of your life? Uh, because, you know, when I was talking to Judy Delosier, I her first experience of NLP was she got given a copy of The Structure of Magic, which was Bandler and Grinder's first book. And that, uh, Grinder asked her for her opinion on it. And she read it and she said, I think these are some very powerful tools for enriching, helping people to enrich their own lives and create more freedom in their lives. That's what this stuff is about. It's about more freedom, more joy of living, more experience of, uh, of the fullness and possibility of life. Uh, you know, greater possibilities. Because the, the thing that our kind of our birthright, you could say, is our ability to learn. And one of the things I'd invite you to consider is even the things which you may have been perceiving as problems until now are examples of learning. They're things that you've learned to do. They're skills. You could say one of the questions I'll, I'll often ask people if they have a problem or a challenge, and you'll hear me ask this later on in the weekend, is how do you manage to do that? And what's presupposed by asking how do you manage to do that? That they manage to do it, yeah. And what's presupposed by that? That it's a skill. That it's a skill. It's an ability. It's an accomplishment. Because this is another of the presuppositions of NLP is that all behaviors are, are accomplishments and that they are useful in some context. So that's nice to know, isn't it? <sighs> so one of the uh, things I'm always interested in at the beginning of a training course is what is it that you want to get from this? And you know, it's also my starting point with any kind of coaching session or one-to-one -one session, is I'll ask people, what is it that you want? What is it that you've come for? What do you want to get from this? Um, sometimes I'll even ask something like, what would have to happen uh, during this for you to go, oh my God, that was the most incredible, valuable experience of my life. I'm going to put this into practice every day from now on put into practice what I've learned in a variety of ways. I'll ask that kind of question. And the other question I'll ask people is, I'll, I'll say, whatever it is that you've come for, how will you know that you've got it? What's going to let you know maybe at some point during today or tomorrow, or what's going to let you know when you walk out of here at, at the end of, of Sunday? What's going to let you know next week, next month, next year, that you got what you came for? I'll always ask that because what am I inviting someone to do when I ask them, how will you know when you've got it? Or how will you know you've got it, rather? What am I asking them? What am I inviting them to do? To imagine, some of the things. To imagine having it. To imagine having it, yep. So I'm getting them to ima imagine having it. I'm getting them to experience that in some way. Absolutely. I'm also getting them to do kind of a cool thing. I'm getting them to time travel because by asking how will you know, what are they going to do? They're going to go to some future point in time, imagine having got what they came for, then sort through and start to categorize sensory experience that will count as evidence. Now, 
Someone once told me something which I consider to be one of the most profound things I ever heard in this field. And typically when I tell this to groups, they go, that's not very profound. But I really think it is. And so I always say, well, if you don't think it's profound, you just haven't got it yet. <laughs> which is very unfair, because it may be that I'm just easily impressed. But what they said was, people never do anything until they first imagine doing it on some level. And so one of, the, one, of my, one of the directions that I'm going in when I'm working with people is always to be moving them towards imagining the, imagining the things they've said they can't do, imagining themselves doing them, creating imagined futures of the sort they want, imagining the skills they want, all that sort of stuff. Because I know that until they've started to imagine that, they're not going to go there. And often, when people have some kind of can't, some kind of perceived obstacle to getting what they want, often they have never even imagined it. Sometimes just the process of getting them to imagine it in a, in a full body kind of way is enough to get them where they want to go. Let me put that another way, that's not entirely true. Getting them to imagine it and embody it is enough to get them to the point where they say, actually, I can do this, and then take action to do it. There is a difference between imagining and something and doing it. But sometimes that's all it takes to get them to the point where they can do it. Does that make sense? So it's one of the things I'll be guiding people to do through this. What else? Well, so here's what I'd like you to do, just by way of kind of tuning up your eyes and your ears and your senses um, and your ability to listen. I'd like you to get into pairs, and I want you to ask the person you're paired up with, what do you want from this program? What is it that you want to get from this? That's the first question. And the second question is, how will you know you've got it? What will you see? <coughs> what will you hear? What will you feel that will let you know that you got what you came from? Came from? Came for. So what do you want from this program? Is the first question. And how will you know you've got it? What if you want, what if the answer to the second question is something you want to do in real life so you really know where you put it? And that's fine. If, so if, if the answer to the second question is, it's something I'll be able to do out in the world, and so I'm not going to know 100% until I've gone out there and done it, there are two answers to that. One answer, there are various ways of testing that what, you do, what you're doing with someone has worked. My favorite way of testing is real-world experience. If someone says they're afraid of spiders and I do some work with them and they say, gee, Mr. Smart, that's all fine now. I want to be able to put a spider in front of them and for them to play with it or to behave accordingly or appropriately with it and for it to be okay for them. Real-world testing is the best. However, that's not always possible immediately at the time of doing a session. Sometimes someone wants something and it's going to be situational. It's only when the situation arises that they're going to know that it's, it's worked. Mental rehearsal is one way of, of testing that. And so my guess is that whatever it is that you want that's going to be happening out of, in the world, 
you're probably going to have a way of knowing, not necessarily of being convinced, but of, of being reasonably certain, even before you leave here, that that's something that's possible and doable for you. Does that make sense? So that's okay. What, if it's, you'll know when it's out in the world, I'd ask, okay, how will you know even before you leave here that that's something that's going to be doable for you? Yeah? Okay. Any other questions? So get into pairs. Oh, before we do this, just, uh, we'll just do my listening skills exercise based on an exercise I got from Eric Robbie. Just stick out your tongue for a second. Uh, grab it. Uh, uh. And you'll notice it goes quiet inside. Maybe wiggle your lower jaw. Because mind and body are one system. Keep holding on to it. It's good. It's good. I need you to keep holding on to it. Mind and body are one system. When you talk to yourself, your tongue moves. When you stop your tongue moving, it's a pattern interrupt on that mental feedback loop. Now, when you talk to yourself, talking to yourself uses up a whole bunch of your available bandwidth for observing the world. Observing the world. So interrupting that pattern is useful when you want to watch and listen to someone else. It's not very practical, however. So just let go of your tongue and take the tip of your tongue and you can either touch it just to the point where your front teeth, front upper teeth join your gums. It's just behind your gums. And imagine a droplet of olive oil or something like that that you're perching just between the tip of your tongue and that point where your teeth join your gums. Or you can do it just at the roof of your mouth where the soft palate is, right at the top of your mouth. Just touch your tongue ever so gently there. Imagining a, that you're just balancing this tiny droplet of oil there. Maybe wiggle your jaw back and forth, let your mouth hang open a quarter inch. So for how many of you did it go completely quiet right away when you did that? A couple of you? Oh, for about half of you. For whom did it start to quieten down a bit? Okay, great. For whom did you notice absolutely no difference whatsoever? Okay, good. So some kind of change. See, the thing is, when you're talking to yourself, all the things you're saying to yourself need to get translated into something that your deeper neurophysiology understands. The human mind and body have been developed for the world of things and experience. If you believe in the theory of evolution, we've been evolving over millions of years, and it's only the last maybe 60 or 70,000 years that language has been around. So our minds and bodies have been developed for a world of, you know, trees and rocks and rivers and running and jumping and, you know, shedding yippee and that sort of thing. Words are really, really valuable. They're pointers to the world, you could say. And the funny thing is the word, like if you hear the word um, water, immediate, you don't even have to think about what that word means. That gets translated very quickly into images and sounds and feelings and tastes and, and smells and all that sort of stuff happens automatically. It takes about a thirtieth of a second for any word. That's an example of anchoring as well. You hear something which when you first heard it was just an utterance. The first time you heard the word water, it had no particular meaning. But very, very quickly you managed to link it up to those sensory experiences to the point where when you heard the word water, you didn't have to go, what is that again? You just know without even thinking about it. 
That process is called transderivational search. And you're doing it for every word that I'm saying right now. It happens automatically. Your unconscious mind takes care of that. Language translation is an unconscious process. And you're doing it. it, it, it the process runs uninterruptedly. It's, you don't even have to pelf what I'm saying. You just do it automatically without even thinking about it. And the interesting thing is that when you're speaking to someone else, what's presupposed in that is that you've got a stream of internal experiences, sounds, smells, tastes, pictures, feelings, that you are then using the reverse of that process to translate into words. Isn't that cool? You learn to do that, you don't even know how you did it. Isn't that amazing? Or is it just me? So who heard me say the word PELF about a minute ago? Two of you, the rest, three of you. The rest of you deleted that word. I said the word PELF right in the middle of the sentence but only three people heard it. Because part of how we, you know, I said, the map is not the territory. We don't experience the world directly. We experience through the maps and models that we're creating real time. Well, the word PELF, you probably don't have a map or a model of, unless you've heard me say it before, as these guys have. So what the thinker thinks, the prover proves. You can imagine your mind as having a thinker and a prover. And we tend to see and hear what we expect to see and hear based on our maps and models of reality. That process of transderivational search that you're using to translate the words I'm saying into you know, internal experience, if it comes across a word that it just doesn't understand, it makes a guess based on context. It doesn't want to interrupt your flow of thought by saying, what's that? What's he talking about? Da, da, da. So it just deletes the word from your experience, from your conscious experience. Your unconscious still tracked it because your unconscious had to make the decision about what to do about it. But your conscious mind just, uh, your, because here's the thing, everything that happens in your conscious mind is presented to your conscious mind by your unconscious. Isn't that cool? That seems like awesome to me. It's amazing. Because our conscious experience of the world has been pre-edited by our unconscious mind. So that's why you want to go quiet inside. So that you can track, you can see the things and uh, the, the see the things and hear the things that are really going on out there rather than what you expect to see and hear. Does that make sense? So this is what I'd like you to do. Get into pairs, ask the other person, what do you want from today? And how will you know you've got it? See, well, ask them the first question, then go quiet, just shut up. You can nod if you want and that sort of thing, but just listen to them. And when they finish, ask them, how will you know you've got it? What will you see? What will you hear? And what will you feel that'll let you know you've got what you came from? What are some of the things that you got just from exploring while going quiet inside? What was going on for the other person? Some of the things you noticed, what are the, some of the things that came up? Well, possibly because where we were sitting, I had the chance of observing more the facial expressions and the eye cues, and it was really great how I could see Meg going up and going that way, and I could say, oh, what is she thinking about now? Ah, okay. So you <laughs> so could so see the, some external evidence of yes, what was going on on the inside. Yes, and how when she was answering the question, for example, um, what do you want um, from this program, she went uh, like, uh, uh, revision and uh, and sh you could see that she was thinking about what she's done in the past or how she could apply the techniques and and what she already knows and how to expand that and he was like it, 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 all the time he was uh, accessing information from 
what she had already got in her to say revision. Now, how did you know that that's what she was doing from the outside? What could you see? Well, it's just that the, the visual expressions and, yeah. Interesting. Now, what did you see Annika do as she was telling us about that? Exactly the same. <laughs> said, well, not only that, but with her hands, she said, you could see how Meg was thinking about how she was going to put it into practice and what she was going to be doing so that she could expand possibilities in the future. And Annika's hands opened up like this. So that may have been modeling back what Meg did, or that may be Annika's unconscious interpretation of how Meg does that stuff. That may actually be how Annika does it. I'm not sure. But we could find out if we had a purpose to do so. So uh, I, I got Rich up here just to kind of explore a little more what he wants from the weekend and how he'll know. Because it's an opportunity for all of us to just kind of, I, I got told once that the secret to being really good at NLP is you watch and you listen. You watch and listen. That if you watch and listen, people will tell you everything you need to know. So we're going to watch and listen to Rich for a while. You might like to put your tongue behind your teeth or on the roof of your mouth. And we'll see what we can see and hear what we can hear and that sort of thing. So, Rich, welcome. Thank you. Now I'm really self-conscious about how I'm moving. So. <laughs> okay, glad, glad I could help. <laughs> now, before we even go on, how, how does Rich do self-conscious? He put his hand up by his right ear. He goes, now I'm really self-conscious of what I'm doing. So we can make some guesses. Maybe, maybe he's talking to himself in that ear, or maybe he's making images of himself in some way. I'm not sure, I'm not sure which. Do you have a sense of that in terms of being self-conscious? No, I, I think I'm feeling something inside. I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, that would make sense. Right hand. The, the idea of NLPI accessing is you've got, you know, visual up. Uh, so visual up and to the left is visual remembered. If someone's right-handed, are you right-handed? Mm -hmm. Up to the left is normally organized right-handers, which you sometimes come across. Lots of people just do their own thing. But it's nice to have kind of a model to play to. Up and to the right is kind of uh, vi constructed images. Over and to the left is remembered auditory, over and to the right is constructed auditory, down and to the left is yakking to yourself, down and to the right, feelings. And Rich said, I think I'm feeling something. Now feelings, because people don't just do it with their eyes, they'll do it with their hands. And it's really useful to track that stuff. And when people are feeling something in terms of an internal emotional kind of sensation, it's typically being triggered by something else. And often the something else is out of consciousness. It's an image or it's a sound or something like that. So thanks, Rich. And are you OK with me kind of commenting on the things you're doing and yeah. that sort of thing? I know it's a bit weird, but yeah. So what is it that you want to get from this program? Three things came to me. One is that I want to have um, a bunch of tools that I take with me for my coaching. Mm -hmm. um, one is that I, um, I, I work with people, about men and women, about bringing more passion into their relationships. Oh. And um, that I want to have more confidence about being able to express that in the world. And, and uh, yeah, just, just more confidence to, to do that and to grow that. OK, so more, more, com more confidence about doing that and growing mm -hmm. that, sure. Yeah. As well as having the tools that you can bring into your coaching. and Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. 
and take with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the last one is uh, in my own relationship, um, I catch myself too often trying to solve the problems that Monique, my wife, has, and she doesn't really have any problems, but I'm trying to solve them anyway. That's <laughs> very generous of you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, since I'm here with you, and uh, I thought, well, let me make that an intention for this weekend as well, that I'm able to, to, to have a different way of being in the world, that I don't slip into that problem-solving mode. So you, a different way of being, so you don't slip into that problem-solving mode. And, and I guess I'm curious, because I guess in some contexts, you want to quite deliberately go into problem-solving mode. Yeah. When you do that, when it's deliberate and a choice and you've evaluated that it's the, it's the appropriate thing to do, how do you enter the problem-solving mode when you do it like that? Do you mean with my wife or do you mean in general? In general. Um, I would be, con I'd be conscious of what I was doing and I'd express that to somebody that I'm about to make some suggestions. I think. Okay. Yeah. Because what I heard Rich say is that he didn't want to slip into the problem-solving mode. Mm. And that's sort of, maybe that's a feeling word, slip into it. And, uh, and it occurs to me that given that he works as a coach, that at least part of what he does on a day-to-day -day basis probably is problem-solving or ha could have that label applied to it, but that it's appropriate to do it at certain times. Yeah? And that when he does it consciously and intentionally, he's not slipping into it, he's getting into it some other way. Does that make sense? Yep. So what way would that be, would you suppose? If you slip into it when you do it accidentally, what would be your mode of activity when you go into it the appropriate way? you have a metaphor that's different from slipping, that's more... Well, as you said that, I saw myself climbing up steps and just walking onto ah. a stage or something like that. Okay. So, Maybe that's a nice way of thinking about it, that when you enter the problem-solving mode, it's deliberate and walking up certain steps and yeah. going on to that problem-solving stage, so mm -hmm. to speak. Yeah. Okay, so with, with these three things, and just out of curiosity, what is it that connects all three of those? What is the, it that they share in common, even though they're quite different in their own ways? They're all about doing what I love. They're all about doing what you love. Yeah. Cool. So with respect to this program, how will you know you've got what you came for? I'll just have a sense of confidence when I walk out of here. I'll just know that I can relax a bit and things will happen in the way I want them to happen. That, that yeah, just that sense of confidence. Again, I'm feeling something inside of me that lines up. Sure. But I walk out of here with a sense of confidence. Okay, so that sense of confidence, and you walk out of here with that, yeah. just knowing that, yeah, and, and, but also being relaxed. Mm. Now, interesting, before Rich said a word, when I asked him, how will you know, what did he do? What did you notice? Yeah, he went. So he lengthened his spine, he sat back, breathed in through his nose, out through his mouth. Because remember, the words, just like the words you hear get translated into something at a deeper, that your deeper neurophysiology can make sense of, in order to create the words that are an answer to a question, your deeper neurophysiology needs to go there first to find out the answer. It needs to go to the place where the answer is. And then it translates it into words. So the very first thing Rich did was went, yeah, that. 
And then he, he said uh, a sense of confidence, I think it was, mm-hmm. lining up. And, but he did this gesture before he ever mentioned having a feeling. Well, I mean, he said a sense of confidence. But later on, the second time Rich got back round to this gesture, he said, I can feel something on the inside. It's like, you don't say. It's <laughs> because this is what people will do. They will show you right away what's going on. So that's great. Mm-hmm. So, so you'll have that. And my sense is, on the inside, to some degree, you already have that, yeah. don't you? Mm-hmm. So what happens, like, what would you call that sense of confidence, that lining up, that, that confidence that you can go forward with? What would you call that? Uh, the word integrity is coming to mind, uh, and then also I'm not sure what, what, yeah. That's the first thing that came to my head. The word integrity. Uh-huh. And what happens when you blend confidence and integrity? What, you might, what might you call that for you? That sense of lining up. Yeah, it's alignment. It's just a sense of purpose and it's kind of, it's relaxed confidence. Relaxed confidence. So when you've got that relaxed confidence, what's your experience of that now? It's the place I'm in right now. Sure. Um, I feel there's a little bit of tightness in my spine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm breathing um, deeply and I'm feeling in my body and I'm aware of people around me and I'm mm-hmm. present with you. And, and this is relaxed confidence. Mm-hmm. Right. And on a scale of one to ten, how, where ten is like the ultimate in relaxed confidence and one is. I'm not very relaxed and I'm not very confident at all. Where, where are you right now on a scale of one to ten with that? A seven. It is a seven. Okay. What would have to happen to get it to an eight, to, for you to experience an eight on the inside with that sense of alignment? You might just like to slowly lift your right toe up very, very slowly, the front of your right foot, and notice what happens. Feel a tension at the back of your leg. Does that intensify it or relax it in any way? Maybe well, I took a deep breath after I did that. I don't know why. Interesting. Okay. On a scale of one to ten, what's it like now? I feel more serious for some reason. Oh, okay. Is that useful or not useful, or somewhere in between? I'm just noticing it. Okay. Well, just experiment with that. If it's at a seven, just experiment with how you can you know, play around with that yeah. and have serious sense of relaxation with it. You might even like to have fun with that serious relaxation. <laughs> yeah, and keep breathing the whole time. But it's nice to know, isn't it, that you already have this. Yeah. And so maybe it's just a matter of being willing to stay with it. And when you notice that maybe your attention has gone to something else or to somewhere else, just bringing it back Mm. to that relaxed confidence. Now, I asked Rich for words. He said, a confidence that I can take with me. Then he said, integrity. And I said, what happens when you kind of blend those two? And he said, it's sort of like a a relaxed confidence, both hands. So symmetrical, both sides of the body, because one of the things he was doing with one hand, one with the other, this with both hands. Now, I'm not saying if they only use one hand, it's bad and wrong. It's not that. It's just that when I see people make these very symmetrical, especially given that what he's talking about is alignment, 
in effect, then two hands is good. Hmm. Yeah. And rich is, yeah. So that's, there, nods can mean different things, but often when you feed something back to someone that resonates at a neurological level, they'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the neurology, the unconscious mind going, yeah, that's right. So, okay. So I'd just like you to experiment with that, just to explore it, to continue to occupy that space. And just notice how from time to time, if your attention wanders, you can bring it back to that space. And notice how by processing this program from that space, new things become possible that you can take forward with you. Hmm. That's cool, because like, the thing I was going to say to you is that I can bring that up when I need it, and then I walk out of a course and it, I'm thinking about the future and it goes and I realize, well, I, I only have it in the present moment, so I just mm. need to keep coming back to it wherever that present moment is. And it's interesting. It can be useful to plan the future. Plans or the process of planning mm. is a useful thing. The plans themselves aren't necessarily so useful because every, when you get to the future, it's now. We're, it's, always, it's always now. Mm. And so it's about being willing to make plans, to go through that process of planning, and then bring yourself to each moment with that sense of relaxed confidence. Where that's appropriate, there's other times where relaxed having a bath is a more appropriate, <laughs> you know, where confidence may or may not be a relevant, uh, yeah. uh, relevant state to access. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thank right. you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Let's give Richard a round of applause. So, the other, the other thing I'd like to explore with you guys, just before we get fully into the techniques, is the area of language. Um, language is very, very powerful. Like I've been explaining that language uh, has an effect on how we process what we're, what we're hearing someone say, but also how we express ourselves. And one of the things that the uh, that Virginia Satir, Fritz Perls, and Milton Erickson all had in common is these people are brilliant with language, very very skilled with language, which with the way they used questions, with the way they suggested things, with the way they would guide people's attention. And what I'd say is that language is one of your most powerful tools. Now, have you heard this thing that only seven percent is the words itself, and the rest is voice tone and body language? That's not true. That's not the case. Uh, there are certain words which, if you say them to your mom, you're probably in big trouble. <laughs> However, it's a useful distinction because content usually comes through the domain of language. And as a society, we're hypnotized by content. We're so, we're kind of addicted to content. And so what tends to happen is that people place more relevance on the story when in fact, as, as beings, as creatures, we communicate on all kinds of levels. We communicate with gesture, we communicate with voice tone, with facial expressions, with all sorts of other things. So even though the 7%, only 7% is the words, even though that's not true, you know, it's a balance of all kinds of different things depending on context and all kinds of other stuff, I'd invite you to sort of pretend that it's kind of true sometimes in order to open up your awareness of these other channels, of the auditory channel, of the body language channel, and realize, because my way of thinking about it is that the conscious mind is interested in the content. Your unconscious 
is intent interested in the structure and the process. That includes gesture, that includes voice analogs, the things like voice speed, voice volume, all that sort of stuff. It includes the structure and patterns of the words themselves. And, you know, let's remember the unconscious is involved in all word selection, so the unconscious is always present. I like to think of those other things as the, the unconscious communication channel. So you might like to think of it like that. Any questions so far? Sharon. Um, you suggested that Rich moved his, his right foot up. Mm. Yeah, I just noticed that, that the whole time, whenever Rich accessed that kind of state, his right foot moved up. And so I was doing it myself. And this is, there's a guy called Joseph Riggio, who's another superb NLP trainer. And he, he's uh, great at paying attention to the micro-muscle movements and that sort of thing, and then getting people to activate those. Because what he gets is that any, any internal experience is not just a mental thing, it's mind and body. Mind and body can be modeled as one system. And so the way someone's organizing their body in order to enter a state is going to have an impact on how they enter it. And if, you know, for instance, if one of the things Rich is doing is straightening his spine, lengthening his spine, throwing his shoulders back, breathing in through the nose, I'd suggest to him that in order to intensify that state, he does those things. That'd be the starting point almost. You could all do that. Just sit back and lengthen your spine and breathe in through the nose. Your nose. Uh, breathing in through someone else's nose would be weird. I don't even, I don't even know how you do it. Uh, if anyone can do that, I'll be fascinated to watch, as long as it's not mine. And notice how you feel different like this. What do you instantly notice when you do that? Answers on a postcard. What do you notice? What's different? Oh, you can breathe out as well, by the way. Yeah. Elaine? For me, it feels very strange because I feel like I'm kind of too far back on the chair. Interesting. Did anyone else feel a bit too far back on the chair? I feel like the way it comes out, I feel lighter and I can concentrate more. Interesting. So you might like to explore. Again, it's just a matter of exploring what, what's possible for you. Opening up. See, as human beings, we tend to be quite patterned. We have quite you know, familiar sets of behaviors, of muscle contractions, muscle expansions, specific states, ways of thinking. And a big part of this is about opening up to greater possibility, greater flexibility of thinking, greater flexibility of behavior. Does that make sense? One thing I noticed with um, Rich is, um, like you said, with his right foot, mm -hmm. I noticed that when he said about the company when it comes out of here twice, you could see his right hand forward. He mm -hmm. had that feeling of confidence just gone straight there. So I was wondering if he actually tries that again when he wants to have that confidence. Just try, you know, the physiology and see how that feels. Absolutely. In fact, I'd experiment with both. I'd experiment with that one and I'd experiment with this one. And maybe even that one as well, the integrity one. And see what different effects those three have. Uh, because, like I said earlier on, this is a matter of finding out what you already do naturally and then amplifying it if that's useful or finding the other places you can use it, ways that you can generalize it into other situations. All right, let's take a pause for 10 minutes and then we'll get back together here.
So any thoughts, questions, comments, considerations so far as you've continued this process of, you know, exploring and experiencing what we've been talking about and exploring? How about another two things from the things I wanted to get out of it? Ah, you wanted to get out of it. <laughs> so what are, the, what are the other two things you've added, Custis? The first thing I had was um, on a business level, I wanted to convert more clients and it's like my subconscious plays games now and brings things up and realizing and brings from my conscious mind because now I start watch and listen what's happening inside me. So I'm starting to look sort of my own context mm -hmm. and what I realized is that when I want to be in a situation like here, I'm sort of put myself in the trance and I'm really literally taking everything in Great. like a sponge. And I don't do that enough on the situations where I want to do when I'm with a client. And if I can sort of go to the situation where I want to get, uh, how I would know is that on Tuesday I've got a client over the phone, I want to convert to a smoking cessation client. So mm -hmm. I've got a consultation over the phone. So the way I would know is that I would be able to put myself in the relaxing mode, confident mode I want to be to talk to that client, pace her and lead her to become a client, you know, to come over for the session. So that was the initial thing uh -huh. that I had. So it was just, just this particular thing. Right. Then from that I realized that to actually do that, I want to be more of that relaxing mode. And that you know that's what's happening with Richard is to actually have that um, I need to be more on that relaxing mode. When I'm on that relaxing mode, then I tune more and I can see the context more and actually tune in just on the content. And so, what, uh, so go ahead, carry on. Yeah, so the next thing was be able to tune myself to the person more by actually relaxing myself first and then leave my subconscious mind take me where my conscious mind wants to go. Okay. So what happens when you imagine doing that now? It feels natural. It's just, I can do it. It's something that I know I can do it, but I need to be at a certain situation to actually do it. But again, it's my map, it's, it's me putting myself on that situation like I'm putting myself now. Like I'm catching myself when I'm listening to you. Um, I'm taking a sort of self-hypnosis mode straight away. So I'm tuning in, everything comes in. And consciously, earlier, I was trying, I was say, I would start writing. I said, no, I don't want to write. I want the things to go in to me. I don't want to write them. And, and then since then, I started catching myself, putting myself on a mode that I'm really absorbing all the things in. Mm -hmm. And is that the same mode I want to put myself in when I'm with a client or anybody else on a business situation where I really want to influence. And is that the mode you want to be in? Yeah. Okay. And I just want to check something. Did I hear you say that when you're in that mode that you can't see yourself? Mm. But when you're in the mode that's not working quite so well, you can see yourself? Yeah, I can see myself in both situations. Oh, you can, okay. Yeah. Uh, but I know 
But now I'm realizing how I can put myself on the focused situation. Ah, okay. So is that something that you can see yourself doing with this client, for instance? Yes. Okay. And is there anything else you need in order to be able to really know that you can do that? I don't know. I suppose I'll find out the weekend. Sure. The weekend. But at this point in time, it feels to me, um, it's like I was giving snipp snippets. When I'm talking to somebody, I don't just like teasing. Mm. I was giving snippets. And when you're trying to close sort of a deal or anything, it's not a pretty good way of doing it because giving snippets and walk, you walk out, you just leave, leave them hanging there. Mm. When you have them, you actually let them there. Mm. And if you just really take them one more step, you just you close the deal. So what happens when you imagine doing that now? Um, I know that I can actually do it. And actually, um, the first thing I realized I've done it is when I was actually closing the phone call in the first place. I was on the phone with her on a business situation. And then we start talking about the stop smoking. Uh -huh. And then I've actually led her, I pace her and led her twice. And once what I've done is I said to her, you already stopped before. Now, what I want to do is I want to make sure that you are ready for it because I have a way to actually, you know, justify that you're really ready for it. Mm -hmm. And then she's gone straight to the search, to the insurance. She says, no, no, I'm not ready. And I said, oh, sugar. I put her on that state already. And then I said to her, okay, when I know that she was there, I said, okay, we'll never feel ready. But what we're going to do is, um, you were not ready, or you felt ready, but you couldn't do it because you didn't know the right way. So I start passing her to lead her again. I'll show you the right way. And then that's how I closed up sort of the telephone appointment. Sure. So now I knew, I concentrated on actually listen more to her and by being more relaxed I could do that mm. so I need to do the same and plan the second call now and what ha well let me ask you something will you send me an email and let me know you've done it yes I will okay good because it sounds to me like Costa's already done on the inside what he needs to do in order to prepare himself to do that Does, do you see what I mean okay so, so language, language. Uh, what I've handed out is a list of what I call kind of language essentials. And I'll just run through them very quickly. First of all, in terms of outcomes, you'll, and you'll hear me doing some or all of these with different people as the weekend goes on. In terms of outcomes, one of the ideas of NLP is you want people to have what's called a well-formed outcome, to know what they want. So what do you want? How will you know you've got it? Is it uh, you know, you think of something that you want in your life, some change you want to make, some goal you want to achieve. How will you know you've got it? What will you see and hear and feel? Also, what do you want? Stated in the positive. So saying what you want rather than what you don't want. Um, is it initiated and maintained by you rather than what I want is for them to change? Though this afternoon we're going to be exploring an approach that actually approaches that. So, uh, so that, that'll be there as well. Um, not about changing the other person, but rather changing your responses. And what you find is when your responses change, the other person changes the way they respond to you. Um, is there anything you might lose as a result of getting what you want? Because we assume that sometimes there are benefits to the current state. 
let's assume there are always benefits, at the very least, familiarity to some degree. Um, so we'll be looking at that. Uh, how will it affect the wider system you're part of? See, you know, we're, no man is an island. We're all part of, you know, other systems, the system uh, where we work, our families, our friends, our social networks, all that sort of stuff. Where, when, and with whom do you want this? Um, I was talking to someone yesterday, and what, did you, what was it she said? Oh, it was something like, I want to be really energetic, and this, that, and the other. And I was like, well, in what context? Because, it, yeah, it's nice to have energy. But she was modeling out being, you know, kind of bouncing off the walls type energy. That's not appropriate on all contexts, not necessarily anyway. Also, what resources will you need? And what will you do? What steps are you going to take? If action's required, what are you going to do? This is why I asked Costas to email me, because I want to know that he's taken the steps to do what he said he's going to do. Um, I'll also ask people, why do you want this? Because that gives you motivation. What's their motivation for doing it? What's, what do they perceive this as giving them? Um, the second heading is the meta model. Meta model is that first model that Bandler and Grinder developed based on the work of uh, Pearls and Satir. And it's a great tool set for information gathering, but also for helping someone in the process to enrich their own maps of reality. And some of the questions you'll hear me using are, how do you know? Which is asking someone to kind of read their own mind to tell us the process by which they know something. How do you know when to have this re response? When does it start? How do you manage to do such and such? What stops you? What would happen if you did? So sometimes people say, I can't do this or I can't do that. I ask, well, what would happen if you did? Because what's that getting them to do? Imagine. To imagine. To imagine something that may be outside of their existing model of what's possible. Um, if you did know, what would the answer be? This is a wild one. Often people will say, I don't know. And I'll say, yeah, it's kind of a weird question, isn't it? But if you did know, what would the answer be? And at least half the time they'll answer with an answer other than that's a stupid question. Uh, the other half of the time they go, that's a stupid question. Um, that kind of question, by the way, I mean all of these really, I, I feel they depend on some rapport. Got to have some rapport with the person. Otherwise, it can be kind of intrusive or nitpicky. And I'll often soften the questions as well. So rather than just going, what do you want? I'll say, so I'm wondering, as you sit here, you know, listening to me right now, what is it that you want from this? What is it that you've come here for? You know, I'll ask, how will you know that you've got what you came for? And, you know, if there's something that you've been perceiving as having limited you until now, what would happen if you did it? What would happen if you could do that thing which you thought you couldn't? Because one of the things I learned from Chris Hall is, uh, Chris Hall's another fantastic NLP trainer, when she was working with Bandler in the early days, he used to say, people can always do what they say they can't. On some level, the very things they say they can't do, they can. And my personal belief is we're all capable of so much more than we think we are. Um, so who says according to who? Sometimes people will state rules of one sort or another. And so you can challenge those. Also just asking if some, someone's been perceiving something as a problem, ask them how it's a problem. You know, how is this a problem for you? Because someone will say, you know, I can't do this or I can't do that. How is that a problem? What, because whenever someone says, I can't do something, there's actually something that they're perceiving that as stopping them from doing. So there's something they want to do, some bigger goal that they want to achieve, but the specific can't has been hanging them up until now. So Milton model favorites. Milton model is the model modeled out from Milton Erickson, which is hypnotic language. 
So you can think of the meta model as a way of getting people out of trance, and the Milton model as a way of taking them into trance. So fact, 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 suggestion. So it's, uh, it's today, and we're all sitting here. And we've covered a certain amount of ground so far. So you're probably becoming curious about what we're going to do next. I've stated several things that were true. It's today. It's not my best pace ever, but, but, it's, but it's pretty un, undeniable. I think you'd all agree. Uh, it's today. We're all here. That, again, is pretty tough to disagree with. And we've covered certain grounds so far. Again, it's like you know, the mind reader. And so, so, so we're here, it's today, we've covered certain grounds so far, so you're probably becoming curious about what we're going to be doing next.